This podcast is generously supported by Zondervan Bibles and the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible edited by D.A. Carson, featuring notes and articles that help you follow God's redemptive plan as it unfolds throughout Scripture. Find out more at NIVBiblicalTheologyStudyBible.com. Want to learn how to interpret and teach the entire Bible in a way that is Christ-centered and clear? Learn with us here on the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. So Nate and John Aiken here with the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast, where we want to have conversations about the scriptures and show how they are Christ-centered, but in a way that makes it uh, clear for our hearers and those that we would uh, teach and, and preach to. And so uh, we're continuing our conversation on the on the book of Daniel. We have with us, we have Jason Redberg, who's in uh, Minnetonka, Minnesota at Redeemer. And then we have with us Jeff Hay, all the way from Dublin, Ireland, Bally Cullen Community Church. Uh, guys, thanks for uh, being on the podcast. Good to be here. Awesome. Well, let's continue our conversation. We've got all the way through Daniel chapter 4, and so we're going to jump in uh, today to Daniel chapter 5. And Jason, I want to start with you. Let's kind of same pattern we've been doing with the other chapters. Let's talk about uh, a summary, particularly if people are in the car reading or, or driving and can't read the the chapter. Give kind of a summary, and then we'll look at uh, from there uh, textual issues and then Christ uh, Christ connections and then how we apply it. So Jason, t- kind of take it away with uh, with chapter five. Yeah. So from Daniel chapter four to Daniel chapter five, we have the transition from Nebuchadnezzar to King Belshazzar. Chapter five opens up with this scene of a great feast. It's a party. It is a a pagan celebration. Verse four kind of sums it up. They drink wine and praise the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. It talks about vessels that have been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And so then it just paints this picture of a an arrogant, mocking, godless celebration. And into the midst of this celebration, the uh, fingers of a human hand appear. They begin writing on the wall. Obviously, everybody uh, especially Belshazzar, is terrified by, what, by what's happening. He demands, it's like the scene we've seen over and over already in Daniel. He says, bring me the wisest people in the kingdom. Uh, bring me uh, those uh, who can interpret this for me. Nobody can. Somebody calls for Daniel again. Daniel comes. Uh, Daniel uh, interprets the handwriting. He confronts King Belshazzar. It's this great scene um, because at this point, Daniel's older and Belshazzar in his arrogance and in his pride, he's promising, uh, he's promising Daniel, hey, I'll give you this, I'll give you this, just interpret the interpret the handwriting for me. And then verse 17, then Daniel answered, I love this sort of no nonsense um, bold, seasoned believer. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Which I think, again, is interesting to contrast that with some of the ways he's responded to kings in the past. I think it's underscoring just the utter arrogance and blindness of Belshazzar here in this text. Anyway, Daniel interprets the handwriting on the wall. 
and the handwriting is, listen, you've been weighed in the balance. You've been found wanting. Uh, your kingdom will be destroyed and your life will end. Belshazzar then has the audacity to uh, act like he still has some power. Um, and he, of course, promotes Daniel, whatever that means at this point. And then the chapter ends. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a startling text when you think about the holiness and the righteousness of God, how God views sin, how God views pride. Um, but of course, there's more going on here, but that's an overview of the chapter. Any, uh, any textual issues that you would bring up? Uh, not that I would... I would bring up. I mean, it's it's a pretty straightforward. Uh, it's a pretty straightforward chapter in the sense that it's it's a story that's being relayed to us. It gives us the interpretation. Um, it's pretty to me in that sense. It's pretty easy to understand uh, the point of of this text and what's going on in the story. John or Jeff, any uh, addition to the summary or even just textual things that that would be important for interpreters to kind of think through. Nothing really else to add, but uh, the comparisons with the previous chapter are, are will I'm sure will be brought out uh, comparing Belshazzar to Nebuchadnezzar and the long speech that he does in the middle section, verses 17 to 24. There's obviously therefore a particular reason to compare and contrast, so that's worth, I think, highlighting. I think too. One thing I would just bring up real quick is the the why does the writing need interpretation is is a question I think that that comes up, and it would it would have been you know kind of like a Hebrew script in terms of just consonants you know consecutive consonants um, that you know it, it would have taken differentiating the words and then the and then the words themselves are a riddle of like what is actually happening. Uh, and what is that the hand trying to communicate whatever this this supernatural event is happening so that that's something that people kind of um, bring up sometimes and then just historically um, in terms of the medo Persian Empire taking over Babylon historically what what scholars think happened is that they did have a wall I don't know as I joke in the like I did this in 2016, right? I joke, I don't know who paid for it, but um, <laughs> there is, there is a wall around Babylon and um, they, so they, and they do have food and they, they could, they could remain under siege for a long time. But apparently the, 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 the Medo-Persians diverted the Euphrates river and came in underneath the, came in underneath the city through not the sewer system as we would think of it, but through the, through the waterways. And that's how they basically took it in a night. And, um, it's just an interesting uh, historical fact. That's good. All right, Jason, tell us then kind of Christ's connections in Daniel 5, uh, and then we'll go to application from there. But, yeah, how, how does this point us to Jesus? Yeah, I would love uh, – I am I want to hear what, what John and Jeff have to say here. Um, but the primary Christ connection I brought out was here's a proud king uh, who gets the just penalty for what he deserves – and yet this points us forward to another king who will come, but instead of getting what he deserves, this humble king will willingly absorb the punishment he does not deserve so that his people, those who believe in him, will receive grace, forgiveness, peace, 
uh, with a just and holy God. That was the primary Christ connection that I brought out um, in this text. And then Jeff mentioned uh, before just the contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. And that was, it was another Christ connection, but it was more in the form of an application or an appeal to say, you know, here Belshazzar knew God hated pride. He knew how God had dealt severely with pride in the past. Like he knows the story and yet he rebels against God. And we see ourselves in that. Um, we know how God feels about sin. We know how he deals with sin. We know about his justice, and yet we turn our hearts against him. And in the story, you expect, because you just read about Nebuchadnezzar, you sort of expect that Daniel will confront Belshazzar and he'll repent. And that's not what happens. And so the first response is, well, he's getting what he deserves. And then I just encourage our people um, that's a that's not a gospel response. You ought to see yourself in Belshazzar, um, that you you know these things to be true, and yet you rebel. And thankfully, um, because of Christ, you don't get what you deserve. But it's only because of Christ. Good. Jeff, John, uh, things y'all would add there as far as kind of Christ-centered interpretation. Uh, Jeff, maybe I'll come to you first. Um, and then even if you want to unpack more of the comparison between uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Well, coming to uh, and tying it to Christ, really, I think the point of this is uh, judgment's going to come. And judgment does come ultimately, though Jesus takes a judgment instead of us. They've been partying and they've been drinking from the cups but uh, amazingly, because of Jesus, he drank the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. Uh, and ultimately, they were partying away, but we are guaranteed a greater feast, a greater banquet like no other because of what Christ has done. Because salvation always seems to come through judgment too. And uh, the Babylonians are now defeated, judged, but uh, God's people, yeah. So plenty of hard-hitting truths here, but wonderful that Christ has taken a judgment for us. And then you were just comparing, well, I think in the middle uh, with Nebuchadnezzar, I think this probably will come up as Jason said in application, there is a lot of contrast and with the son-father emphasis that is mentioned in sort of a middle part of his speech. Why does he bother with a whole history le lesson, uh, the writer comparing and contrasting Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar? And I really think, and there's links there even with a repeated phrase that the God is the most high who rules over all. So these two chapters go together and it's really just showing the contrast. One humbles himself, receives mercy. God shows him mercy. One doesn't and receives judgment. And I think yeah, we need to have the hard-hittingness of chapter 5 come through in this sermon. Now be a good time to hear from our sponsor. This podcast is generously supported by Zondervan Bibles and the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible edited by D.A. Carson. Biblical theology allows you to ponder the individual stories and themes of Scripture while observing how they all fit together in God's grand biblical narrative. That's why this unique study Bible features three articles in introducing biblical theology and 25 articles unpacking key themes of Scripture. The NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible contains detailed book introductions, 20,000 verse-by-verse study notes, 28 theologically rich articles by 
by authors such as Tim Keller and Kevin DeYoung, hundreds of full-color photos, more than 90 maps, and over 60 charts. All of this allows readers to marvel at the big story while savoring each detail. With a focus on biblical theology and the overarching story of Scripture, the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible helps readers follow God's redemptive plan as it unfolds throughout the Scriptures. Find out more at NIVBiblicalTheologyStudyBible.com. It's amazing how often that theme runs from the Proverbs, the pride goes before the fall and then how he lifts up the humble. Now you see that play out throughout the all, all of scripture. Um, yeah. So even just, I was preaching recently the, the garden of Gethsemane uh, narrative and you have all of them saying, if, you know, if I must, you know, first is Peter, if I must die with you, I'll die with you. And it says, they all said the same. So it's not just Peter that puts his foot in his mouth. They all said the same. And by the end of the night, it says, even Mark fled with, you know, naked or whatever. He forgot his pants back back there. And so they've all been prideful. I will not do this. And then by the end of it, they've all fallen and fled from Jesus. And so you should see this theme run throughout. John, uh, additions as far as uh, how this points to Christ? Yeah, I would just I would just kind of piggyback on this theme of judgment. I think, so when I preach it, one of the things I bring out is one of the, the key parts of the chapter is that they bring out the sacred vessels from the, that they had stolen from the temple. And so they're, they're blaspheming. I mean, they're blaspheming God. They're using, they're using these articles that were meant to worship God, to, to blaspheme him. And it's kind of this, the, the taking of the articles and those kinds of things is it's, it's like, it's not just, as I bring this out, it's not just beating your enemy. It's mocking them while you beat them. It'd be like yep. somebody taking down the United States of America and then burning our flag, you know, all of our flags and, 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 you know, ransacking our museums and those kind of, like, it's just, it's just utter humiliation and running up the score. And there, I think there's this implication here as they're in this, as they're in this uh, conflict with the, with Medo-Persia that, Hey, our, you know, our gods defeated the gods of Israel and they're going to defeat, they're going to defeat you as well. I mean, it's just this kind of uh, celebration, but what I, what I try to bring out is that the, there's this theme in scripture that the vessels uh, that are in the, the temple are not just, um, they're not just artifacts. They actually represent God himself. And so you see this with the Ark of the Covenant, for example. And so these vessels, uh, they represent God himself. And you see, for example, back in first Samuel uh, five, um, that when the Philistines are at war with the Israelites, the Israelites are being, push back and they say, well, we know how we can win this. Let's bring out the Ark of the Covenant. And so they bring out the Ark of the Covenant as this kind of like rabbit's foot and then they get defeated and it's, and the Ark is taken. And then, you know, Eli falls over and breaks his neck because he's fat and all that, all that stuff. And the Ichabod, the glory is departed. But the whole, the whole point of what's happening there in first Samuel five is um, when, when the people of God are idolaters, they are warned you will go into ju- you will go into exile if you want to serve foreign gods. Then guess what? I'm going to send you into foreign places, and you can serve foreign gods, and you're going to go into exile. And what happens in First Samuel five is judgment. It's also mercy because it's God Himself, uh, as He's symbolized in the Ark, who goes into exile, who goes into Philistine territory, and takes them down. And it's the same thing that we see happening here in in Daniel. Daniel one, Nebuchadnezzar steals the vessels. And guess what? It's the vessels that ultimately bring Babylon down. Mm. Uh, and so there's this theme throughout scripture 
that God, the way that God saves his people is, as Jeff mentioned, like salvation through judgment, the way that God saves his people is, and the way that he defeats his enemies is by allowing himself to be seemingly defeated. Uh, he, so, so this is a Genesis three. He's, he's going to have his heel pierced, but he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so when I, when I bring, I definitely bring out, I mean, that strong, uh, you know, that, that strong judgment pride goes before the fall. And, but the way that he brings down the prideful, the way that he brings down his enemies is by taking judgment upon himself. And so, so this theme I see in, in scripture, if we want to talk theological categories, this is where, um, this is where like Krista's victor and penal substitution come together is that, and that's why penal substitution I think is kind of the heart of atonement in terms of theology is that everything else flows out of that is that he's substituting himself for his people. He's taking on their defeat. He's taking on their judgment and that's how he saves them. And that's how he defeats their enemies. And so that's, that's kind of what I bring out in Daniel five. Yeah, that's good. I, I love pa- so. I think it's Packer. I, I can't remember fully, but it says the whole Bible is, a, is a, about substitution. We put ourselves in the place of God. God, in His grace, puts Himself in, in our place. Adam tries to take what is the rightful place of God, and Christ, in His kindness, takes takes our place. Jason, so uh, yeah, let's talk application. How did you make this kind of clear for your listeners, and what are ways that we can apply this text to our lives? Many of the ways we've already mentioned, uh, dealing with pride and humility and God's judgment and his grace. A couple of other things that I brought out. One was this contrast that we see all throughout the first several chapters of Daniel, and that's um, exposing the futility of earthly power against the power of Almighty God. So here you have this picture of Belshazzar. He's throwing this party. He's mocking God. Um, you know, he you you can picture it. He really thinks he's something. He's presenting himself as a God to these people. And then out of nowhere, uh, God intervenes. He interrupts and uh, and Belshazzar is terrified. In fact, I told our people, if you want to picture what the text, the kind of picture the uh, text is painting, uh, picture Barney Fife. Like this is what this is what Belshazzar has become in uh, in the presence of Almighty God. So one, just pushing them to understand the futility of earthly power. Um, and then, um, you know, we talked about just that, uh, the emphasis in the text on, again, Belshazzar knew how God had dealt with sin in the past. He knew God hated pride. Uh, he knew God had the power to give kingdoms and take them away. He knew that God set up kings and kingdoms for his own purposes, and yet he lifted himself up against the Lord of heaven. Like this is just um, anybody who's reading this text should stop in their tracks and they should evaluate their heart and they should behold the, the holiness and the justice and the power of God. Jeff, John, other any other applications as y'all preached it that you kind of brought up for your people? I mean, for the unbeliever, I think that threat of judgment needs to be heard. Uh, people are here in Ireland eating, drinking, getting on with life, and God's revelation is there. And for people in the church who should have know who should know better, like Belshazzar should have known better. He had the revelation, he had opportunity to repent, and still he basically says, "Stuff you, God." Uh, so that was the main thrust. I mean, a little aside, you could have a, what age was Daniel at this time? 
who's an old guy in his 80s. You don't need to be st- spending your retirement gathering shells on the beach, as it were. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's uh, the main thrust has been said, I would Jeff, say. Jeff, let me ask you, let me ask you a question then on that, because you're in a context that's, you know, a, a tough context, a rocky ground. When you preach judgment in a, in a situation like that, how, do, how are you kind of approaching that? And what are you saying to the unbeliever that might be in your midst? Well, we don't have many walk-ins, uh, so just who happen to come to church. It'd be mainly family members, children of, of Christians that would be there. So for them, if they're there, dragged along by their parents, you can hammer this home. You've heard this revelation over and over and over again, and judgment is going to come. Uh, I think Ian Duggett is a quote that every day of your life you're feasting on the edge of the grave and they might be toying with uh monday to saturday out and about eating drinking getting on with life and then maybe they come in on a sunday uh forced by their parents they know god's revelation they need to feel feel the force of this passage the tone of this passage judgment will come now so hate it john uh, additions there one, I want to say I love Ian Newgood, and um, I've got a real had a real funny interaction with him last summer that we may have to share at some point. But um, so I you share that in now? addition. Okay, I'll just share it real quick. So, <laughs> so I have a book on Proverbs called uh, "Preaching Christ from Proverbs," and it's gone out of print. And so it, it had gone out of print, and so they're like the only copy you can get on Amazon's like people are charging like two hundred bucks for it. <laughs> And so, which is, I mean, just out, outrageous. Okay. Um, and so I just real quickly re reprinted it on Amazon through, um, you know, through the Kindle, uh, so that people could have it because I require it for class. Some people require it for classes or whatever. And so I was teaching a D men class late summer on, uh, preaching Christ from the old Testament and required my students to get, to get it. And so I'd had some people ask me, Hey, Dr. Aiken, I see only copies 200 bucks. Where can I get it? And so I would just send them the link. Well, I'm interim pastor at a church in Naples. And so I'm in the airport coming back and, 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 you know, I've got a flood of emails I'm trying to respond to. And I, and I have somebody email me, it says demon class and your book. And it's, so I'm reading, I'm just like real quick reading through it. And it's like, I can't only copy I can find is 200 bucks. And so where, where can I get a copy of the book? And so I just, I wrote back real quick, Hey bro, here's the link, <laughs> send it. And I didn't think anything about it. Cause I thought it was a student oh, from my man. class that was yeah. trying to ask for it. And so then when I get home, I'm, I'm, I'm going through my email again, just to make sure. And it's Ian Duguid <laughs> who's teaching a class at Westminster this summer and is wanting to use my book and is asking if he can get a copy of it. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh my gosh. I cannot believe I just said to Ian Duguid, this hey, like preeminent scholar, hey bro, here's the link. <laughs> and so I so I emailed him back and I just explained, hey, I'm interim pastor. I was rushing through emails. Here's what's happened. Um, I, I of course know who you are and I'm so thankful for your work and I'm a big fan. I'll send you a copy of here here's here's the 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 draft of my book. Uh, here's, you know, I'll send you whatever you need. And he was very, very, very gracious, but I felt <laughs> awful. <laughs> That's incredible. So, 
<laughs> don't answer real quick. You know, if you're, if you're answering too quick, you get in trouble. Um, so just a couple of things I would, that I tried to bring out. They're just more like real personal practical application in addition to what they said. So, so I set this up. I mean, I, I'm funnily enough, I, I'm a, a huge fan of the movie, the princess bride. And my favorite part of the princess bride is the battle of wits. And, you know, he, in that he, he talks about, um, you know, th- those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it. And, he, you know, the, the first is never get into a land war in Asia. Uh, <laughs> second, only slightly less well-known is never going against the Sicilian when death is on the line. Uh, and so I just set up the sermon with that and talked about the fact that we don't learn from our mistakes, that we don't learn from history. And so I'm, I'm setting that up to talk about Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, and the Belshazzar connection that he doesn't learn the lesson uh, of pride and humility. And so, so that, so I do do the, I do the pride and humility part, but I also talk about not learning family history in terms of different things. It could be, it could be alcoholism. It could be uh, pursuit of money. It could be all kinds of different things where that have caused havoc in your family or in your history that, and you're not learning the lesson uh, in terms of what impact it could have on your family, your health, et cetera. And so that's, that's one just kind of a subset of the kind of the main, uh, of the main deal. Did you, conclude the sermon, be, did you conclude the sermon coming back to that illustration? I did not. Okay. I didn't, I didn't have a way to say, you know, Jesus is the better Wesley. <laughs> so even though he is, who, 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 rescues, uh, who rescues his bride yes. after he's died and come back to life again. I, I was right there. It was right, there, right there. there. After, well, after he mostly died and came back to life. Again. Um, so uh, second would be just this idea of idolatry of using the gifts that God has given um, and not in, in worship of him, but as an end of themselves and then third, I, I do think it's, it's just instructive to me in terms of in an American context where we're pursuing the American dream that he's given all this, he's given wealth and he's given authority and it's literally worthless the next morning, like literally gone. And so just this whole, you know, the foolishness of, uh, of you know, the, the peril of the rich fool. And it's like tomorrow your life's going to be, uh, you're going to be called to account. And, you know, these things that you, who, whose will they be? And, um, and so just trying to think through like when, when, when you are not ultimately tied up in simply making money, then you can have the moral courage and fiber to stand up and tell the truth and, and be as, as Jeff said, he's an old man at this point. He's, he is, I mean, he, he's not worried. He's not anxious about these things. He's, I mean, and so, so I just got to try to bring, bring some of that out in applications. That's good. That's good. Thank you for listening to the Christ Centered and Clear podcast. If you have questions or topics or texts you would like us to consider for future podcasts, please contact us at ChristCenteredAndClear at gmail.com and please visit us at ChristCenteredAndClear.com for more resources. 